0: We're returning now after a couple of weeks. I've been gone for two weeks, came back for the service uh, last weekend, but um, had someone fill pulpit for me so that I wouldn't uh, need to put the time in while we were away. We just happened to have two back-to-back places that we traveled to, and we uh, went up into the Rockies, of course, two weeks ago. And this past week we were in Michigan on the lakeshore there at a pastor's retreat and it was a wonderful wonderful blessing but I'm glad to be back at it we appreciate your prayers and looking forward to get getting back into Paul's journey we have learned so much over the past three years it's been just over three years that we've been on this journey with Paul and um, he, he might have even gotten it done in less time than that I'm not sure but But we want to take our time because we're learning so much. The Lord has so much for us. If we would give attention to his word that we can learn not only about Paul and about his travels, this historical travelogue that he's on is interesting and fascinating enough, but there are things that God intends for us to glean from these travels, from these stories. The planting of his churches as it's happening now across the Mediterranean and around the Mediterranean Sea. So we're in part two, preached part one, two weeks ago. We're in Acts, and it's the, the longest section where Paul is presenting his apologia, his apologetic, his defense for not only himself, but for the faith. And we're look, we've looked at chapter 25, verse 13 and following, which took us to the end of that chapter as he was dealing with Festus. Uh, He had been before two governors now, and now he's standing before a king, which if you think about it is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, where the Lord was telling Ananias that Paul would be fulfilling these things for him personally, which is to stand before the Gentiles Kings and the children of Israel with his gospel, and that's exactly what we see. We wonder what's on uh, what's on his mind as these things are rolling out uh, in in a revelatory way in his life as Christ is fulfilling his plan for the great apostle, knowing, being confident that he will get to Rome, told by Christ himself personally. You must get to Rome, but not understanding the circuitous route that that is taking, but willing to stand. So we looked at a number of characteristics that allows a man to stand before kings, to stand before Roman governors, to stand before a Roman tribune, to stand before the Sanhedrin, and all of those who would rather see him dead. And this second governor now, Festus, We left off with his conundrum, if you will. The conundrum is this. He inherited this problem because Felix, the governor before him, drug his feet, was waiting for Paul to maybe pay him off. He was looking for money, as the text reveals. He was looking to curry favor with the Jews. He didn't know exactly what to do, so he just kept Paul in prison for two years until he was ousted from that governorship. And this is the new man who has come in, Governor Festus, And so now we have Festus who's trying to give this fair treatment and he's inherited the conundrum. I don't know what to charge this man with. He hasn't really broken any of their laws. There's an issue of theology, but I don't really understand those nuances. So I am so glad, he might be saying to uh, King Agrippa, that you have showed up because you understand these things. The Herods were a line, a legacy of Jewish kings all the way back to Herod the Great. Uh, And now we see this Herod Agrippa II, who's showing up with a keen knowledge of Judaism. His mother was very interested in Judaism, and so was Agrippa himself. He was considered an expert in Jewish law. And so he not only could uh, bring things to the uh, tribunal with regard to the Roman law, but also to the issue of the Jewish faith and whatever the issues regarding this man Jesus as Festus is telling King Agrippa, who Paul says died, but now he's alive. Okay, so tag your it, You can handle it from here. So we pick up in chapter 26, where really this testimony goes from chapter 25, verse 13, all the way through to chapter 26, end of the chapter, verse 32. And so right now we pick it up in verse 1. We'll only grab a hold of... Uh, excuse me, verses 1 through 11. Let's read that together. Chapter 26, verse 1 to 11, as Paul stands before King Agrippa and his consort and sister, Bernice. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme in enraging fury against them. I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Father, as always, we need your help. We need your help with the right understanding. We need your help holding mental focus on these things. You've given us much to wrap our minds around. But no one needs, in this room, more help than I do. I need your help, O Lord. To preach these words with accuracy, to preach with clarity, to preach with efficacy, Lord, reach the hearts of all of those who belong to you, perhaps those who have never known you, not fully, not completely. Speak, O Lord. Speak, and your servants will hear. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Paul's fifth defense, his fifth and his most clear. This is the culmination. This is the conclusion, you could say, the climax of all of his defenses. This is his, I think I said last time, his magnum opus. This for its craft, the way the bright, the, the, the brilliant apostle has crafted this particular apologetic is masterful. He knows who he's standing before, perhaps the only one that generated some real enthusiasm because this is a Jewish king. Paul loved the Jews. He was Jewish. Now I've got a man. We won't talk about his lifestyle, traveling with his sister. We covered that two weeks ago. We don't want to go there again. But I'm going to focus on the fact that this man is a fellow Jew who needs Christ He understands the theology, as he'll say later on. This is something that wasn't done in a corner. I'm convinced that you know these things, O King. And so this is his best, I believe, out of all of them thus far. He's bringing all of the previous defenses together in a masterful way. Now he's he's aired out his apologetics so much, he's become quite a master at it. This is the most... Elaborate of it, as Polhill says, Of all the speeches in acts, this one is cast in the most elevated, cultured language. You'll remember he impressed the Romans. He impressed even the tribune himself, Claudius Lysias, you remember, in Jerusalem. He was impressed that he spoke to him in in clear and uh, high-intellect Greek. And when he turned to address the crowd after seeking permission from Lysias... He addressed them in the native Hebrew or Aramaic. He's smart. He's very smart. And God is using his cleverness to appoint him in these different settings so that he might be able to preach the gospel that Jesus said, that is that which I am sending you, both to the Gentiles and to the Jews and to kings and that's what we see it's remarkable so this is why i don't think it's a big question anymore for us why would he give his best his magnum opus if you will to king agrippa if we after we looked at the background of the herods i mean they're a mess let's just say they're they're, they're just a train wreck of a family line why would he do that i believe it's clear because he's not only a Jew. He's a well-educated one. He understands their laws. And so that's what, obviously, Governor Festus is is counting on. I need to write a report. To Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you will be sent. As soon as I can figure out what to write in the report. So he's counting on Agrippa for that. And Agrippa, we were talking first hour, of course, about pride. So he's must be puffed up somewhat. He comes in with all of this this pomp and grandeur. He's got tribunes, plural, with him. Those are Roman uh, authorities, over a thousand Roman soldiers each. These are tribunes, high-level, high-ranking officials. He's got high-level, high-ranking people that are in the community. He's got a full entourage there. You just wonder what Paul was thinking as they walked in and he had one thing in mind, not this man's pride, but his eternal soul. And so he's going to give him the gospel because that's what matters most to him as it does hopefully to us. We know that Agrippa, being a member of the Herod family, showed an interest in God's Messengers, we can look at Mark six twenty, where his great uncle Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch, Mark six twenty, feared John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. They had a respect for what they saw God doing, even though the family line was a mess. They were arrogant, uh, they're they're sexually immoral. They were brutal. They were murderers, really. Anybody was going to get in their way, even their own sons. Herod the Great was killing his own sons. When he heard him, it goes on to say, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Didn't quite fully understand what's being preached by John the Baptist. Who is this interim guy? Who is this transitional figure that's shown up? He's kind of like an Elijah-type And he's got all of these profound, very deeply um, uh, religious prophetic statements to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Whoa, I am not even fit to latch his sandals, you know, and all of this kind of thing. So he's intrigued. And I think the Herods typically are intrigued. They're dead and blind inside. But they know enough intellectually about the doctrines of Judaism to be intrigued by what they see. And so that's what we have here with the great nephew, with Agrippa II. He's fascinated, so he says, I'll, I'll see him. I'll, I want to see Paul. I want to talk to him. It's more about his pride than really finding a way to resolve a problem, other than Festus being impressed with him because he'll give him something for his report. Oh, I understand their theology. We'll figure this thing out. Where is he? And he never does. Well, at the end of the chapter, it's ship him off to Rome, and then we're on the boat in chapter 27. When Jesus was before Herod Ant- Antipas, you remember, and, and see, that's the similarities. There's, the similarities are really striking between what Paul is facing and what Jesus faced, both stood before a Roman procurator, Jesus, of course, uh, Pontius Pilate. Both were sent to a Herodian king. And here's what what is said in Luke 23, 7-8 when Herod Antipas, when Pilate had sent him over to that Herod. When Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at the time when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. It's interesting because he says the same thing about when he saw John the Baptist. There's something that's grabbing his attention. Perhaps Paul knows that. Something's getting their attention. Maybe this will get through. Maybe if I, expl- if I can give my full ap- apologetic and hence he says to the king, oh king, listen to me patiently. I'm grateful to be before you. That's a compliment. I know that you're an expert in Judaic law. You understand that no Roman laws have been broken. Actually, no laws of Judaism have been broken. Even Festus con- admitted that. And so will you. But I think that you're interested in hearing this. He was very glad. This is the Herod with Jesus. For he had long desired to see him. Why? What causes somebody to marvel? The the souls that I'm most concerned about aren't those that are intrigued or outright reject angrily. There's a heart there, isn't there? Christ isn't in it yet, but there's a heartbeat, a spiritual heartbeat, let's say, okay? It's the apathetic. It's the ones that really don't care. They're tough to win to Christ, right? You understand that. So he sees something alive alive In these Herods, just like Jesus. Same thing. For he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So it wasn't just a floor show necessarily. Oh, this would be cool to see what he can do. No, the intrigue was there. The Herods investigated Judaism. And so we don't know. We don't know for sure what was on his mind, but these texts are. Interesting, aren't they? Insight into Paul's ability to stand before hostile accusers who want to see him executed. I want to know what makes a man like this. We've mentioned this at different times throughout the entire travels of Paul. And so Acts 20, you remember when he was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, expecting never to see them again. He said this in verse 22. Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. This just isn't something that I want to do because I really love evangelism. No, I'm I'm constrained. God, help me if I try to resist it. Right? But he says this, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions will await me. That's a given, we would say. Just know that that's coming. The words you speak, they're going to resent. If you speak the truth, they're not going to like it. He knew that going in. Prisonments, afflictions await me, verse 24, but I do not count my life of any value. That's the place I need to get to. If I try to preserve my life in the little kingdom that I've built here, which I love. He's blessed us, hasn't he? But if I don't see my life as expendable, that's where Paul was. That's where he was. I don't consider my life of any value nor precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understands the sole reason for which he draws breath on this earth. That's it. If you belong to him. You speak his words. We talked about how he did nothing. The one weapon he pulled out and yes, he had one, didn't he? What was it? Truth. Do you remember? That's the sword of the Spirit. He speaks the truth, not only about the gospel, but about the false accusations. Because he has to protect himself if he's going to be free to continue to give the gospel. But the outcome belongs to whom? God. There you go. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you, you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You're just not going to. I don't expect to live through this, he could say. It will take my life. See, if you understand things from that perspective that your life is given to Christ, then you can stand before anybody and speak the truth. Because you'll be speaking it in the way the Bible defines Love. Love always speaks the truth. So here's another point. Real biblical love, we need to understand going in. Real biblical love engenders hate. And those who are opposed to truths that confront, challenge, and interfere with their lifestyle. Know that going in. Paul did. Can you imagine Agrippa sitting there with Bernice, his sister, knowing the relationship that they had, knowing the background of his entire family line? How many would be too apprehensive, too afraid, really, which is a fear of man, which brings a snare. What's the snare? The snare of the gospel isn't getting preached because you're withholding some truth that they need to save their soul. You just want to give them the good parts. The things that they want to hear. That's not Paul. This is what they need to hear and I'm going to speak it patiently, respectfully and in a great demonstration of the love of the Christ who is truth himself. This this vocal component of my existence doesn't belong to me. Our words are to edify each other and to be used to draw someone nearer to Christ who didn't know him. Listen to the prayer of a faithful minister of gospel truth. Listen to this carefully. This articulates it so well from Psalm 69, just verse 4 to 9. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, what I did not steal must I now restore? Is that how we compromise? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. There's the humility. Right? Verse 6, look what he's concerned with. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Don't let the ways in which I fail, the ways in which I make mistakes, I confess to them. They're open before the Lord anyway. Be sure Deuteronomy 32, verse 23 says, You have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. Everything that we do Hebrews 4 is done openly before Him with whom we have to do. He looks at our hearts. He knows that. So He's simply confessing that fact. Just, just, I ask for this one thing, O Lord. Don't let those mistakes, those errors, only let it cause the people to say, this is more legit to me. Why? Because He's human. That's Paul. This could be said of Christ. This could be messianic too, yeah? I hope you see that. But that's the life. That's, that's the price. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Verse 7. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. We bear reproach, Paul is saying, through this psalm. See, he would be very familiar with this psalm. He would see Christ in this psalm, except for the, the parts of mistakes or sins or anything like that. But Christ, you'll see in a moment, is, is, is bearing the reproach that's meant for who? God. He bears the reproach that's meant for God. It's not just Jesus, the man that they hate and don't understand why. It's the God he represents. It's the God they've offended since the garden. I don't want to hear you anymore. We need to shut him up. We need to do whatever it takes. And and now that reproach, since Christ isn't around anymore, falls on Paul. You see? It is for your sake that I have borne Reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This psalmist is taking on what he can fully expect, the contempt, the hostility of those who resent God. Not only through Christ, but through Paul. Not only through Paul, but through you and I. Psalm 8950 50-52, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen, calling for a doxology after such a profound truth. If this were required before somebody signed on to Christianity, how many would actually really be Christians, do you suppose? If you represent the one who indwells you, you will inherit his sufferings and his affliction. If not, you have to wonder how effective you are with his gospel. I do. Romans 15, 3. Paul cites it again from the psalmist. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those that are meant for you, Father, are falling on me. And I bear them, O Lord, And these reproaches when I'm gone to be with you will fall on those who take my name. I will fall on those who have my spirit within them, but I will see them through. You will lift them up as you lift me up if they're willing to wear the mantle. It's a writer who wrote this, making the point well a faithful gospel minister is so determined to do good to the church of Christ that he is willing to be despised by the people he serves in order to do them that good so paul could say that he quote this is second corinthians 12:15 will very gladly spend and be spent for you though the more abundantly I love you, because that's what real love does by the way, the more abundantly I do that, the more I love you the way the Christ himself would if he were here today, the less I am loved by you. It's almost axiomatic. It's almost automatic. To the point where we should be suspect if we're just chill. I mean, we're we're fine. Nobody, we don't, wow. This is, so then that, in that moment, if that's my attitude, I've just put this in the realm of insignificance. Just a story. This is what we've inherited. This is who we are. It hasn't stopped with Paul or the apostles. Be wrong to think that, wouldn't it? The selfless love and concern will sustain service even in the face of resistance and unwillingness to receive it, end quote. So let's talk about this continuity of affliction, shall we? Let's see what, this, what the Scriptures further have to say when we look at Paul so we can further understand him so we wouldn't be surprised at attack, so we wouldn't be surprised at being ostracized from something, so that we wouldn't be surprised at at hatred as you stand in the name of love, for that's his name. So he defines what that looks like. Not our culture. Aren't you glad? So inheriting the reproaches of Christ will result in his suffering and affliction. As I said, axiomatic is going to happen. If you're representing Christ well, the whole gospel, the complete gospel... Every man, woman, and child's need, you're going to make some enemies. And he knew that. That's what impresses me. The more I get to know him as I'm studying through this great historical narrative on the, on the founding of the church, I'm struck by this. Peter is the same way in his own way. So Colossians one twenty four. listen to this. Now I rejoice in my suffering. Say what? What did he say? It can't be right. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why? And in my flesh, listen to this intriguing statement, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now, whenever you put the word lacking together with the name Christ, you better unpack it, yeah? <laughs> well, well, clearly we know that this isn't a reference to his atoning work. There's nothing lacking there, yeah? Are we good with that? Otherwise we got to go other places and it's going to be even longer this morning. Recite with me Romans 8 verse 1. For there is now no what? Condemnation. What did Christ say on the cross? It is Thank you. Can we stop there? Do you need more? He, he Listen, he fully atoned for our sins. Past, present, and future, praise the Lord. All of it. But what do we do with that? Oh, we're going to get practical here in a minute. You mean you haven't been already? No, I haven't. I feel like I'd do you a disservice if we didn't get right down into the rub. Are you okay with that? That's why there's these empty chairs here. So what does filling up what is lacking in Christ mean? So it's not his atoning work, even though the law accomplished its purpose in sending us to the cross. That's its purpose, isn't it? The scripture says the law is meant to give us, to say, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I need a savior. I need someone who has completed the full will of God. yes. Gets us to the cross, doesn't it? It's supposed to. It's still used, now listen to this, in your life as a Christian, as an accuser, the law, by your enemies. You following that? They're still using it. Listen to what this writer said. Christ is no longer atoning, but he is still assaulted by his enemies. And they carry out that assault by attacking his servants on earth. Who's that? It's us. William Hendrickson said they hated Jesus with an insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions. But since he is no longer physically present on earth, their arrows, which are meant especially for him, strike his followers. It is in that scene that all true believers are in his stead, supplying what, as the enemy sees it, is lacking in the afflictions which Jesus endured. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us, end quote. Let's get into Paul's defense, shall we? That was the introduction. In every defense that Paul makes, he isn't primarily defending himself. He's defending the gospel for which he was sent, which necessarily means you must tell the truth. Even if that could incriminate me, even if I've already... Lord, I've already... You need my help. I've already figured out that can't end well. I could die and then what? Like the psalmist, you know, if I go down to Sheol, who's going to proclaim your glories? <laughs> you hearing me? No. Yeah, I'm hearing you, but I don't like what you're saying. Verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now this is, put put the display up. This is grandeur. This is pomp. This is all of those who are important, assembled with, with great pageantry, okay? You have permission to... So this is a very formal introduction for, from uh, verse 1 to verse 3. Then Paul stretched out his hand. Demosthenes was famous for this, the Greek orator. You've seen statues or paintings or whatever were like this, and it was thought that Paul did this through the whole defense. Imagine that. And aren't you glad that that's not my custom? My arm would get tired. Yeah, man. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate. Here it comes, right? That it is before you, King Agrippa. I don't think this is so much smoothing. I think he's being serious here. You know our laws. You're a fellow Jew. You're one of us. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Listen to me. Because this should make sense to you. And if, it, if God is at work in your heart, it will. It'll open wide open. Truth is the only thing that can do that if God is pleased to do the doing. Listen to me patiently. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from, my, from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They know me. And, and moreover, verse 5, they, they have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, you won't hear them testify about this, will you? Don't hold your breath, king. That according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He was as admired as a Pharisee. He was a ladder climber. He was, he was studied under Gamaliel, you know the whole pedigree. Verse 6, And now I stand here on trial... Why? Here's why. Watch how he articulates this. Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Our fathers, King Agrippa, O Jewish king. The promise made to our fathers is on trial here. Say what? Then how could they say that you're breaking the law of Moses? Or you disregard it? Verse 7. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain. That's another way of saying the whole of All of Judaism hopes to attain this. You're going to find out that they're after something else here. As they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. For this. For something that we've hoped for, for millennia. It's in our writings. It's in the law and the prophets. It's in the whole of our scriptures. This is what we were waiting for. What is it? You can say it. Messiah. Messiah. I'm rejoicing over here because he showed up in person to me and said, Yeah, I'm the Messiah. You know, the one you're persecuting. It completely transformed his life. But he would be naive to think that he should be able to just tell those to his fellow Jews and they're going to go, wow, yippee, that's great. Oh, wait a second, the guy we just put to death, that's not going to happen. Here comes, here comes the inherited sufferings and afflictions in the face of truth, the ugliness of where their heart really is and what they've made of religion comes out like black gook. That's what I'm on trial for, O king, verse eight. Now, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's in our scriptures. It's in our scriptures. You look at Job, for instance, Job nineteen, twenty five to twenty seven, for I know that my redeemer what? Lives, But look what he says after that. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, it was on its way out, wasn't it? Yet in my flesh I shall what? How does that happen if he died? Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. The thought of this whatever I'm suffering causing my physical death here and yet rising at some point to in my flesh see the risen Messiah. (laughs) That's reason to have your heart do a little fainting, isn't it? That's not the only place. Daniel 12, verse 2. Listen to this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul ever existed or anybody else in our story here, they had this in their scriptures. So you can see why he would say, why is this thought incredible? This actually is part of our expectation Even Jesus says, or when Paul is speaking to Felix, you remember in chapter 24, But this I confess to you that according to the way, according to Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This is something that they know. He made that point to Felix. And so he's shorthanding it with the king because he's Jewish. It's like, why, why are you stunned by this? Why, is, why should? The, and maybe, maybe, maybe in his knowledge, the king might be thinking to himself, it doesn't shock me any because I'm very familiar with our scriptures. You know what? You're right. He actually silences the king through this whole thing to where even the king doesn't have some grand you know, determination, some grand verdict, some long tome that Festus can take back to Caesar or send to Caesar. No, he's just like, this guy could have been free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And that's it. That's it. Luke 20, verse 37 to 39, Jesus was speaking to the religious Jews. Remember they questioned him about, um, if this woman marries a man and she dies, and and they go through that whole, you're like, come on, just get through it. If she ends up marrying, what is it, seven brothers or whatever, one after the next, which is their custom, when she goes to heaven. Whose wife will she be? And he goes on to say, you know, you don't, you, you don't understand. They're like the angels. You're not given in marriage when you're in heaven, so you, you don't understand. Well, that's, that sets it up. And then he says this, verse thirty-seven, of Luke twenty. But that, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the what? Dead, but the God of the living, for all live in him. Then some of the scribes, I would add, are honest enough to say, Teacher, you have spoken well. Luke one thirty-seven says, there for, there, for nothing will be impossible with God. So they should have understood this. The point is is well taken or should be well taken or well made since Agrippa's great uncle thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Remember that? Matthew 14, 1-3 at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's his That's Agrippa II's great uncle. So so they knew this. They knew about the resurrection. Jesus even pointing out, because he knows the Sadducees only held to the book of Moses, so I think he intentionally pointed out, yeah, but even in the book of Moses, in the law of Moses, God, Yahweh, introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. Why would he introduce himself that way if people just died and weren't resurrected? Brilliant. Brilliant. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them after all the synagogues in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Just take a moment to think of how that must affect Paul. Governor Pliny the Younger in the second century said to Trajan the emperor that it was impossible to get a Christian to blaspheme. You couldn't do it. This had to frustrate the Apostle Paul when he was Saul persecuting the church. Why won't these people recant? They would rather die. They would rather be imprisoned. But to live with this on his record, that had to be challenging. And I was struck because there's essentially what we've gone through so far, two lists between verse 4 and 5, where he gives, he gives the positive list, the good list. Remember? Remember? Manner of my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem is known by all Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of religion I have lived as a Pharisee. And then he gives another list. Do we do that? Do we make lists? Do we hope the good, positive things we've got going on outweigh the things that maybe are more shameful or that we regret? We do it all the time. So, I want to address that before we end. The danger of list making. How did Paul reconcile these two opposing lists? Because he did. These are lists of condemnation and lists of commendation. We play out those lists all the time if we're not careful, if, if we haven't really applied the gospel to our thought life yet in this regard, if we're willing to pick up the very guilt that was paid for at the cross, like Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and put that backpack on ourselves, we're listing things that are negative. We're listing things that are wrong, where we blew it, where we obviously made a mistake, where we failed to fall, follow through. We make lists, don't we? And then if someone in our lives loves us enough, they'll try to encourage us. What do they encourage us with? Another list. Is that the gospel? Jesus died so that you'd have a longer list of positives, man, so that you can finally let go of those negatives. He paid for it all. What happened? I was struck going through our passage thinking, what does he do with those two lists? He was the most religious guy in the world that everybody in all Judaism would respect and admire, and he airs that out. And then he airs out this list that had to have been terrible for him to bear. He was imprisoning and voting a thumbs up for the death of the very people that Christ died for. So the positive list is in verse 4 and 5 as I said. Where do we see another positive list by Paul? Philippians 3. Philippians 3 verse 3 to verse 5. For we are the real circumcision who worship By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, no less, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness... Under the law, blameless. Wow. Can you come up with a list like that? But what does he do with this list? Keep going. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss. For the sake of Christ Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things good list, bad list. He suffered and died for all of it. And I counted the good list as skubalon in the Greek rubbish, refuse. Your good list? We make this mistake. We measure. We count, measure, and weigh. We're looking, we're looking at numbers. We quantify things. And so we get burdened when that bad list starts accumulating. Paul didn't let that happen. He could breathe out both lists, if you will, in one apologetic They're all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If I try to hang on, I would say of any of my lists and calling them good, I could not gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, period. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. There it is. I'll willingly take it on because by faith my Savior has paid the price. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's his negative list? Well, we just read the negative list from our passage, verse 9 to 11, persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. But he has another one. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, So let's talk about this nagging form of legalistic judgmentalism that we seem to carry in us just by virtue of the fact that we're fallen human beings. This is what we do. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's how you should regard us. Don't start counting up the accomplishments that I made, I'm nothing but a servant. When Christ came, remember the kenosis, the emptying in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, he, he emptied himself of his entire good list, if you will. All of his majesty, everything that he was in the Godhead, and just became a plain man, which was prophesied by Isaiah in 53, right? Right? That's all Paul says. That's how you should view us, period. Don't list make. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. So this is the issue he's dealing with. You're, you're, you're counting, measuring, and weighing. You are putting one list against the other. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. You're wrong-headed if you start down that road. I am not aware of anything against myself, but but I'm not thereby acquitted. He still makes mistakes. He still sins. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's see the fundamental problem with list making is it's not only a legalistic judgmentalism imposed on ourselves, but then we do that to other people too. We start counting, measuring, and and weighing. But you don't know what the Lord actually will commend. You see, the things that you think are commendable, that you want to put on your commendable list, may mean nothing to Him. The things that you put on your condemnation list, you're viewing wrongly as well. So what I want to share with you as we're bringing this in for a landing is that there are only two realms. There's only two realms. You're in one or in the other. You are either in the domain of darkness as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have been given forgiveness. We have redemption, He says, the forgiveness of sins. So it's not like we can start bearing the burdens of our list-making and going back and forth between one realm and the other. You know, I used to I had something clarified as I was looking at this and studying it further. Sometimes we go, you know, you are either in one kingdom or you're in another one. Wrong. Satan is not a king. He's a warden. You are in the domain of darkness. You are imprisoned. You are in deep, deep darkness. You struggled in His chains. And Christ came and lifted you out of that domain and put you in the kingdom of His beloved Son. For by grace are you saved. Praise the Lord, yeah? Praise the Lord. He has something similar in the next chapter. So we want to make a death to legalistic list making is the point. Colossians 2, the next chapter, verse 13 and 14 of that chapter. Listen to this. Having been buried with him in baptism. What does that mean? You're dead. The old man, the old sinner is dead. He died the death with Christ and what? Rose with him. Listen to what he says. He can say it it far better than I could. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were, past tense, also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I say all our trespasses. What do you have for that negative list? What do you write down? Burn it. Destroy it. Don't do it. Don't bear it in mind. Don't put it in your heart. All of your trespasses. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed that list to the cross. And we go rummaging around on the blood-stained ground for it. But there's a couple of things on there that I still do. What? What? What don't we understand about His atonement, His propitiatory work, His expiation? What don't we get about substitution? What is there lacking in Christ? What is it that we have to fulfill? The suffering and afflictions that come. This idea of canceling. Not A literal washing out of a signature? No. It's much greater than that. It means the complete destruction of the law when we regard it as a code. When you... I don't know if I left this in your notes for you. I hope I did. But it means to abrogate. It means to eliminate entirely in the sense that it be used to judge a Christian standing before God. Can Christians do that? Yes. We'll pick up the stone tablets and judge ourselves. We'll list make. Well, the moral law is still in effect. And I I keep doing things wrong and I keep sinning. Where is that list that he nailed to the cross? I got to find it. This does not mean that the moral law no longer has significance in the believer's life. I wouldn't know how to live. It wasn't for the guidance of his word. Before you start shouting heretic at me, at the point of regeneration and justification, his relationship to the law, our relationship to the law, becomes diametrically changed from hatred and contempt like Luther had. He hated God. Because of the burden of the law. To our delight. It's our delight. We love the law of God. Why? Because now I know how I was intended to live. I, I, I know now how, what kind of a husband I should be to my wife. I know now how to be a brother in Christ to you. And I know who it is who promised that he will be in me accomplishing that work that he started. He will complete For it is God at work in me, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure, His time frame, His power. Sanctification, my friends, is monergistic. Don't get hung up on your Reformed theology, because a right reformational understanding gets what I'm saying. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You yield yourself to the work of the Spirit. You don't grieve the Spirit. But I wouldn't know what to do or how to act or how to think if it weren't for the revealed will of God. It's the principle of life. It's the law of Christ. Galatians 6 and verse 2. And thus fulfill the law of Christ. Whoa, we're not fulfilling any law. No, he fulfilled it for you. You're cooperating with it by His life in you. <laughs> Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119. He can't stop writing. He can't. It's 176 verses. His wife probably said, put down the quill. Supper's getting cold already. I got full apples here for you. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. His law is my life. It's my life. I don't measure my standing with God by the law. That's when you start with the lists. That's when you start carrying that Christian-like, Bunyan's Christian burden on your back. There is no sin, mistake, or error you ever made that wasn't paid for on the cross. But that also leaves us needing to know how then Should we live? We live by the principles of the Christ who dwell in us. That's it. Because I love Him. So I love His Word. That was Psalm 119.77, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. I wouldn't know how to live. Make decisions. Be a good Husband, a father, whatever it is. Employee, neighbor. Psalm 1, verse 1 to 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his what? Delight Delight is in what? The law of the Lord. Wait, what's he saying that for? Oh, it's before grace came. Maybe that's why. No, the law... It defines him for me. I see the resplendent beauty in the laws of God. We broke them. We broke them all, James said. You broke one? You broke them all. Okay, well, let's start there. So the ground's all level around the cross. Let's just get there, shall we? He wants you walking away loving with his word to you. He's still speaking to you. I can't be with you. You're going to bear the afflictions and sufferings in my name, but I will be with you. I will guide you. I will show you how to live. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Here it is. We no longer live under the law, but under grace. The law of love now prevailing in us. Oh, that we would get this. Our lives would be so set free. We would have such an impact on the lost and the dying, the blind, that as they grope around in our culture, not knowing what it is that's wrong with them, Blame, 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 blame. Right? Mm -hmm. Take away the guns. If the guns are shooting people, take them away. Maybe the person's mentally ill. What does that even mean? (laughs) Let's not go there, right? What is mental ill? How does your mental get ill? I mean, I'm not saying there isn't things like schizophrenia and so on, but Everywhere they point but the truth, man is sinful. He's wretchedly, and the seeds of every known sin to mankind reside in his heart. Whether you quote Ryle or McShane, the principle is the same. I think I read even Owen said the same thing. The seeds of every known sin to mankind reside in every man's heart. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Galatians 5.14 You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know what that looks like. That's why we follow him through this book. That's not legalistic. I'm not looking to improve my standing and I wasn't looking to save myself by obeying the law. Either one is wrong. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. He's given that to us as a gift. Or we would what? Boast. The natural human tendency to count. Measure and wait. Just remember, that's the context you're born into. It's our tendency. Just be careful. Let's, in our marriages or in our friendships, help each other see, hey, wait a second, you're starting to quantify things. That's the context God puts you in. He's outside of the timeline continuum. He created time. He's outside of it. He's outside of quantifications. He's seeing what you do with that information, what you do with that context. Don't strive to ignore or replace the bad or negative lists in favor of focusing entirely on the good lists. It's a fool's errand. You'll suffer for it. That's, by the way, all that the world has to offer, isn't it? Well, let's just keep boosting the self-esteem. Let's keep telling them all the wonderful things about them. And maybe they won't feel bad. No, that's just pandering to their pride, folks. What they need is they need grace. They need the cross. They need to be reconciled with God. Just avoid list-making altogether. Understand, by the way, before we finish, that the bad list... is the list God uses to make you look like His Son. He'll use all of those mistakes, sins, errors, in His patient love, to slowly mold you and shape you into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, you who love God and are called according to His purpose, you can confidently say, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose receive the forgiveness and freedom that there is in Christ receive that forgiveness it's available (laughs) to you knowing that you can't come up with a list long enough of good things to satisfy God. Confess this. Live as free people, <coughs> alive in Christ. Father, thank you so much for our gospel, for the truths that are embedded there. God, forgive us when we naturally tend to compare ourselves with ourselves, making good lists and bad lists, we understand now the Apostle Paul is able to stand because all things are counted as loss. But all things are used by you. Even though all are in the lost category, they're used for your good purposes. So may you be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.